Hello and welcome to the For Unto Dawn podcast. This is our first podcast recording session. I uh, hope you guys out there will uh, forgive us for any technical difficulties. My name is Danny. Um, I'm site owner at For Unto Dawn, one of the main article writers. Um, I have two guests here with me today, and I'd like them to introduce themselves. All right. Well, I'm Isaac. Uh, I go by Postmortem on all the forums. I'm a big HBO forum goer, uh, and I write a lot of content heavily focused on the prehistoric uh, aspects of the Halo fiction. And I'm David Fuchs. I go by that name on HBO. I write as Dangerous Dave on Forward Unto Dawn, and I write about this and that. Okay, and uh, guys, uh, as we're recording our podcast here, as we're planning things out, we had um, a massive influx of um, of new fiction and uh, new things to talk about here. One of the th- one of the things I think we should start off with is the data drops uh, that have been um, dumped on us at uh, the uh, Halo Waypoint website. Uh, the uh, the data drops for anyone that's unfamiliar with them have been uh, sort of a viral campaign for um, for Glasslands and tying uh, they've been trying to tie the um, different parts of the Halo fiction together. The uh, the data drops have tied Reach and they're tying the Ghost of Onyx. They're going to be tying Glasslands together, so it's part of the whole world building. I think that they're they're doing for. For Halo 4 setting up the whole unified universe, and these data drops are just another step forward in that in that sort of process. What do you guys think about the data drops so far? I think pretty much the most interesting part is really that, like you were saying, the foundations for connecting what we know with Glasslands, especially to me, the most interesting thing is everyone really hates Halsey and. <laughs> Before, we were always, I mean, especially with the fall of Reach and First Strike, we're getting everything from, if not her perspective, at least from people who definitely like her more. I mean, the Spartans, they're, she's her mom. So um, definitely now we see that she was being watched all the time. They were ready to cut her loose if necessary. It's definitely another dimension that's tying in directly with what we see so far in Glasslands. Yeah, and in in that sense, it's also uh, interesting because it's adding so much more realism to this situation that we've only seen from, like you said, so many perspectives before. Um, with her, what was it, the psychological analysis, um, how she performed on the tests and how that would reflect back on the military and her performance there. Um, additionally, I, I think the data drops are really interesting in how they ki- are kind of tying not only Ghosts of Onyx and the Fall of Reach, but the actual game itself of Halo Reach into Glasslands and then subsequently into Halo 4. Yeah, there's. Um, I don't think there's any... Nice secret that um, tying the uh, the Reach video game into the existing fiction hasn't been as smooth as it possibly could have been. So I think uh, the data mm-hmm. drops here, um, they're trying to give give the game some breathing space by 
uh, explaining maybe some of the discrepancies, not all, but some of the discrepancies that um, that we've brought up, that uh, the the community's brought up. For example, the, um, the whole Operation Red Flag and why why reach the military, the strong, the the forefront of the military's presence and um, for the UNSC, uh, their, their main ca- military capital, as it were, why it was so grossly underdefended. Uh, I think they try to go out of their way to explain that and tie it into um, into the Operation Red Flag that there was a plan in place and that um, one of the characters in particular, um, an Admiral Parangovsky, I think it's I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, that um, her um, she's a, a, an admiral in charge of uh, only section three, and she as a, as a puppet master had uh, a plan in in place for Red Flag that went beyond what we understood at the time, and that that plan may have included what we end up seeing in the in the video game that uh, they wanted the Covenant to come into reach, and they were willing to they were willing to sacrifice a lot more than. Um, they put forward, like not telling different parts of the of the army, not telling different parts of the military, just keeping them on like a literal blackout as far as uh, the Covenant invasion was concerned. I mean, that was one thing that I know a lot of people on the HBO forums are still arguing about whether it's physically possible to keep people blacked out for however long if parts of the planet are being glassed, but apparently they were doing that for at least a couple days successfully. Yeah, Reach will reach is a reach is a big planet. And if the video game has anything the is anything to go by, then the the security and communications on that planet are basically a few sheds and a few fields with very important switches. So I can understand where it would be very difficult to keep that up and running where anyone can go in there and press a little button and shut down an entire continent's worth of communication areas. Well and it's also a matter of and especially in Reach, they show glassing as being this kind of Mount Doom effect going on beyond the mountains that you can pretty much see everywhere. But we don't necessarily know enough about the actual physics involved to see how much of an impact it would show. Mm. I mean, the analogy I always used was, uh, I think it's Mount Krakoa um, in the 19th century blew up, caused massive environmental damage around the world. Everyone knew this island blew up. But once again, how much of glassing is a giant super volcano going off and on a planet that's much larger than Earth, how much of that you would actually see is kind of open to debate. I think the only, the only one of the, the major sort of things is that you have the Covenant invading Reach to the point where we see in even the second level in Reach where uh, Sword Base is under attack. And I'm thinking that sort of scale, it. It's hard to imagine that with a Covenant cruiser overhead that you're able to cover that up, particularly in the, the military stronghold of, of humanity. You know what I mean? You can just, oh, don't worry, we'll just, we'll just pretend this didn't happen so the guys over the hill there don't know about it. It's, it's one of those things that they're just trying to tie up together, and I'm not sure that the, uh, the data drops will be sufficient enough to quell all the complaints that fans have brought up. And the interesting thing is that um, if you got the reissue of The Fall of Reach, they actually made the first kind of attempts to um, reconcile the problems in Reach in the adjunct at the end of that reissue. 
got it open now, they've got the the message that Keys sends to Vice Admiral Capano, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce the mm. second one. It says, you know as well as I do that these blackout orders aren't worth a damn. Crew talks always have. It's my plate welders out, th out verifying the hull with the great big view of the show below. And they're definitely talking about how there there's a huge cover-up going on from Oni. Yeah. Well, I think that's the um, the Halo get out, of, get out of jail free card. Oni did it, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So mm -hmm. um, I'm not too sure I'd be happy with um, with inconsistencies being explained away. Oh, it's Oni. Why does that? Oh, it's Oni. Oh, wait, Oni. You know what I mean? It, it's too easy to rely on that um, to cover up yeah. anything that you want or excuse any, or any sort of inconsistencies. Yeah, I think that's part of the the data drops, um, the the purpose behind the data drops, because we we basically got the only did it excuse in the adjunct for fall of reach, and then this is going that further step to explain why. I, I think actually that's the the at least the nice thing that the data drops are doing because we've always had only did it, but at least with the data drops we have a concrete reason why because. It seems kind of bizarre that you would give up for weeks at a time when it is your last best stronghold outside of Earth, but at least it suggests that Oni was willing to sacrifice it to see Red Flag work because they were that desperate. So it's at least a little more understandable, not just everyone's stupid and somehow missed this. <laughs> okay, all right. So the one of the one of the major things that the, the day drops done, um, they've introduced us to. This this character of uh, Admiral Parngovsky, as we know that she's a she's a major player uh, in Halo Glasslands, the upcoming novel. I think um, I think that um, the data drops do give us a, a slight a slight insight into the type of character that she is. It hints at maybe. Um, what do you guys think? Do you think that um, do you think you guys know this character going into Glasslands? from these data drops? Do you know anything about her? I think it's less what we know about her directly and more what we are getting from the characters that are involved with her because we've got Stanforth kind of shit, I hope you don't do this. Like, she, you can tell that she definitely wields a lot of power and trying to outright ignoring her or outright overruling her isn't really an option. They've just kind of got to get on our better graces and are hoping for the best because they don't know exactly what's going down. Which just increases the um, the curiosity as to how she got that standing and that high level of power. And, you know, for my interest, I I'm highly interested in not so much what sort of control she has over Oni, but how she worked up through her own life to get there as a as a person as a human being yeah actually i mean i don't think we've really ever gotten much in the way of biographies for any of the oni spooks they're usually just shadowy characters who are usually just kind of assholes kind of in the way of everyone else <laughs> especially in yeah like evolutions or something so it would be I'm not sure how much Glasslands would reveal or the data drops will reveal, but definitely how these kind of ruthless characters end up topping the intelligence community is certainly something interesting that we'd love to know about. 
This week uh, we mm-hmm. also got um, our first taste of Glasslands properly with the uh, the Halo Bulletin this week. We got second chapter released at the same time Tour.com released the first chapter of Glasslands that originally appeared in the anniversary edition of OXM magazine. So uh, we now have the first two chapters of Glasslands publicly released to whet our appetites um, for the upcoming novel. I was really excited to get my hands on anything from Glasslands. And uh, the fact that I woke up in the, that day, I got two entire chapters to digest. And what those chapters contained, I was ecstatic. What do you guys what do you guys think whenever you got your hands on the first two chapters here of Glasslands? Well, I think actually my favorite part was the prologue. I was trying to remember if there's ever been something like it, but I think it's one of the first, one of the few first-person point-of-view segments in any of the Halo novels, and it's definitely keeping with Karen Travis's sort of look at Halsey that she talked about on um, one of the Spark casts. It's definitely painting her in a different light when you kind of hear it in her own words that we've always been sort of guessing her motivations and we're taking her word for what she's doing and why. And that's definitely a look into how she feels, especially about the Spartan threes and sort of this betrayal she sees as everyone's betrayed her. Mendez has betrayed her. Ackerson, of course, betrayed her. Um, And she's sort of the only one who seems to think, or she thinks that she's the only one who has a handle and did what was right. Yeah. One thing I noticed here whilst, uh, whilst reading it, um, at the very end of the prologue, uh, it, uh, it brought up uh, Miranda. As we, as we know from the, yeah. uh, the journal, they confirmed some fan theories that uh, Miranda was actually uh, Halsey's daughter. And uh, I find it interesting that the prologue brought up, brought up Halsey thinking about her daughter. It's a, it's a natural thing to, to do. And uh, we know as, as, uh, as readers that Miranda's kind of dead, and Halsey isn't aware of this fact yet, so I think it'll be interesting whenever they hook up back with the UNSC properly, if they do hook up with the UNSC again, and, um, well, Halsey has a lot to answer for in terms of kidnapping Spartans, that uh, the uh, the only spook admiral wants to call her attention to, but um, I think we might get to see a more exposed side to Halsey. Whenever she learns about uh, about Miranda's fate, yeah, it'll be interesting seeing Halsey uh, kind of transitioning from that stage where she has this estranged daughter who, uh, which we read in the journal, there was this huge distance in their relationship because of Halsey's work, and now Halsey already has a lot of guilt because of the creation of the Spartans and all the time that she spent focused on that which was essentially ruining people's lives. And now that her daughter is, you know, when she eventually finds out that Miranda has been killed, how much is her guilt going to increase and how is she going to deal with that? That's what I'm really curious to find out. Mm. It's funny that um, at any other time, if it wasn't, it wasn't a war time, um, someone like Halsey was essentially a war criminal for the 
the things that she's done. Like no person can expect to do those sort of things and get away with it. It's one of those things where history is always written by the winners. And um, this is a, a war against two human factions. The, she will be pretty much answering for her crimes. So I think that's one thing she'll have to deal with internally. Is um, I think it's one thing that the books have led up to uh, her dealing with at least emotionally, dealing with the consequences of her actions. And uh, the whole exodus to Onyx was basically, I think, her, her way of trying to give herself some, some forgiveness, that at least she's able to do one thing, take some of these people out from the situation that she basically put them in. And I don't think that's going to come come to the conclusion that she wanted to, because what are they going to do in Onyx? You know what I mean? What's, there's always going to be something else to fight. So I don't think the, the folks on Onyx wherever they're now inside Dyson's where I don't think they're going to be sitting down having having parties and sure. settling down anytime soon. You know, they're still battle-ready. They're still going to have another little adventure. Mm-hmm. And uh, the chapter that they released showing them inside the Dyson Sphere was actually thematically kind of interesting in um, in showing that tension, that they're in a strange new place, and it's not, like you described, it's not time to relax it more than anything they need to be more alert than they've ever been before mm, mm, definitely and i mean the big thing is why was this shield world theoretically not ever used because that's what it's there for so there's a giant question mark hanging over who else could be in there with them what those bird-like bat-like possibly sentinels possibly some other sort of life are doing in there and sort of like their first trip to another halo they haven't been to one yet and they don't know anything about what's going on around them Mm. so would you say that um from the early indications in the preview chapters would you say that the um i don't know what you want to call where where they're currently at onyx um would you say that the Forerunner installation where they're currently at, um, do you think it would be fair to describe that as being more active versus, say, the, the Halo itself being inert? Signs of life all around them, as it were. Whether or not that's actual life, and not, say, like we're saying, Sentinels. But do you, you think it's fair to, to say that uh, they're trying to give us, a, give us a, an idea that this place is more active than uh, what we've seen in the past? I'd definitely say so. I mean, it's also, unlike the Halos, which are just kind of waiting around until they're triggered, they did activate, or the Shield World was activated, and we don't know anything about what goes on when that happens. We obviously know it opens the portal to the Dyson Sphere, but what goes on inside is unknown. Until now. Until now. (laughs) There's a, a big separation in purpose obviously, between the installations. Like, Halo is specifically a weapon, whereas the shield world is, you know, it's it's meant to protect the people that are inside of it. So I think, um, you know, we, we definitely saw a lot of interesting environments on the Halos, a lot of wildlife, a lot of natural terrain that was built up, but that wasn't the primary purpose of the Halo. And in the Dyson Sphere, yeah. it, it's going to be much more heavily focused on that. So, yeah, I think definitely there's going to be a lot more uh, activity in terms of life and probably because of the protection that the shield world offered uh, the technology as well mm. see the reason reason why I brought that up because I remember 
during Halo Fest. They, 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 they were talking briefly about Halo 4. They didn't want to give too much away. But one of the things that I remember they were at pains to point out to us is that the facility that uh, Master Chief finds himself in will be more active. Like, what if the Chief went somewhere and it was more active? It was the, the Forerunner structures and places where the Chief's been in the past would be more like more like graveyards, um, relics left behind and, and forgotten about by an ancient dead race. And uh, the Halo 4 would introduce this, this more active environment that the Chief would find himself in. And I think Glasslands has given us maybe a, a preview of a more active Forerunner environment. There's an interesting thing about um, the the choice of words there, because uh, Frank, during the panel, described more active Forerunner technology, I think. But if you think about it, most of the Forerunner structures we've seen were pretty active, considering how old they were. Well, we uh, there were the them. ruins on Delta. During the game, we, we were the ones activating them. That was, they were being activated by us. They weren't naturally occurring, apart from one or two facilities that we were in the process of playing through the game of activating the different techno- different various technologies that we came across. Well, I guess it depends on how would you how you would define active because I mean the the Halo installations are constantly test firing. That's a pretty active piece of technology just to consider the you know what goes into that technology. I mean that was without any human interference and that was very active. But on the other hand, I mean from most of what we see on the Halos it's we don't know much about how they get repaired or if they need to be repaired. We only see the Sentinels once the Flood are released or since the Flood have been released and they're fighting them. And we don't see Guilty Spark until then. So it's pretty, in that respect, you've got the pulse generators obviously working. You've got them shooting the little the beacons into the sky or whatnot. But we don't see much from, obviously, the Monitor or the Sentinels until things go south really quickly. In Halo 2, they gave us a good example of how the Halos are repaired by the by the Sentinels. Um, the constructors, when you go to the, sh- the um, what is it, the shield wall? The, mm-hmm. the wall to keep the flood out, and it's badly damaged by the Covenant. There's a high concentration of constructors in that area working to repair it. So... That does kind of say that the the halos are automatically repaired by the machinery that's there, to a certain extent, at least. Yeah. Well, they've always been hanging around in fairly good shape for hundreds of thousand years, getting hit by whatever from space dust, so they're doing pretty good overall. One thing I think we're overlooking here is um, the (laughs) Arbiter and the progress uh, between human and um, Sangali relations or lack thereof since uh, oh, the definitely. end of the war. Uh, I think one thing, maybe some people yeah, been being slightly more naive might be expecting things to be, oh, the war is over, holding hands, peacetime. Isn't it all great? We stopped fighting, and uh, Glasslands has shown that uh, it's not exactly, doesn't exactly turned out that way, has it? It's interesting because one thing I hadn't really thought about until they had one of the soldiers in uh, Glasslands bring it up is that there hasn't been, no one has, no human has known peace, most of them in their lifetimes. There have been at least one, possibly two generations of people who only know we're fighting the Covenant. And that's obviously hard to go back to peace. And then meanwhile, the Sangeli 
that's all they've done for millennia, as far as we know. They just fight. Yeah. Their entire culture has been warped by, um, by, by the Covenant, by this, this devotion to the Covenant, and that they don't have, they don't have farmers, they don't have, they don't have the, the infrastructure, the economic infrastructure that any sort of society at that level would be expected to have. And then, I mean, the fact that we knew that, obviously, the elites were very religious, but we only ever really saw the elites around the Arbiter towards the later stages of the game. So, I mean, they seemed to like him. Everything was going pretty good. And obviously, there are people who are... <laughs> I mean, we got a hint of it in Evolutions, but there are people who are going through a crisis of faith about the Forerunners and sort of see what the Arbiter told them about the Halo installations as sort of spitting in their face, and they don't like him as much. Hmm. And that's understandable. Yeah. Like, no one wants to have their entire faith removed from their removed from underneath their feet. You know, it's it's not an easy process of saying, oh, by the way, your entire lives, your culture, your religion, all that means nothing. And again, we see um, we see Oni in the background playing different factions off against one another, trying Oni to did it. <laughs> trying to destabilize um, the the Sangeli long enough to allow humanity to get back on its feet. I think that's very interesting. What do you guys think about that? Do you think it's I think it's typical Oni just operating in the shadows for the sake of it, or do you think you think there's there's something more meaningful behind that? Well, I think for one thing, it actually might suggest that Oni doesn't know exactly as much of the, about the Covenant as we think or thought, because if from what we know about things going on in the Sangili homeworld, things are just going to go downhill as far as we know. They can't repair their ships. There's the great passage about how they're scrounging for, um, what was it, a Revenant? Yeah. To kind of to take over there, and it's got all the stuff that they can't even repair the body damage done to it. And the, the engineers as well, that they relied on to fix things. The engineers have all mysteriously disappeared. I thought that was interesting to note. Yeah, and that's got to be a major plot point going into the next series, or the, or the books at least. Mm-hmm. So obviously, Oni might not know, but the elites are already in a pretty precarious position that that their interfering might just push them over the edge. It'll be interesting to see what happens. So in terms of um, humanity getting itself back on its feet, there was a, a lovely little reference to something that uh, the Admiral, the only Admiral uh, brought up was a little reference to something called Infinity. She hinted that uh, people are going to know what Infinity is soon enough. And... Um, of course, we being readers, we usually know slightly more than the in-the-universe characters do. And at Halo Fest, yeah. we had a chance to see some concept artwork, and one of the one of the featured pieces uh, was a lovely ship above a mysterious planet uh, with other ships in the background. And the ship uh, was uh, was a prototype ship, a human forerunner prototype yes. ship, and it was the UNSC Infinity. Well, at this point, it's still an assumption that it's infused with the forerunner technology, right? Well, from what they said that the in in the in the preview chapters, they pretty much said that they have forerunner they have forerunner technology now with their ships they can go places faster than they have before, particularly in regards to the older human colonies that they've lost contact with. 
basically said we can now go to, go to those places with this technology much faster. We can check the check things out basically. So I think it's a pretty direct mm -hmm. connection there between the, the infinity and and this this brand new forerunner infused human technology that the UNC apparently now has access to. Yeah, it can be assumed that it's obviously got the forerunner technology on it. I think in the excerpt. It only stated for a fact that the Port Stanley, the ship called the Port Stanley, has the it says latest Forerunner enhancements, um, but that was in reference only to the slipspace drives. I think we don't know quite how much Forerunner technology is uh, present on the Infinity, but I think there's definitely a huge focus on the actual purpose of the ship, and that's the the biggest question right now is what's so special yeah. about the Infinity in terms of purpose. Yeah. And so, do you think then think this, is, this is the a more direct tie-in then to Halo Four, um, since the first time we've seen the Infinity was in Halo Four concept arts, and now we have it popping up in, in Glasslands, and they're sort of foreshadowing its importance. Do you think it's our biggest clue so far? Mm -hmm. I have a feeling that the Infinity might be uh, might end up being similar to the precursor in uh, Cryptum and the Forerunner trilogy in terms of how it is brought up in the story. Um, I don't think, mm. if, if Glasslands is the first part of a, of a trilogy, I don't think they're going to answer all our questions right away. And if, as we've seen in the concept art, the Infinity is going to be in Halo 4, they're going to have to continue that mystery through the books in order to tie it into the game. Okay, guys, one thing, um, one thing I want to bring up here whilst we're on the topic here is um, during Halo Fest, we, uh, we got a little closer look again at the terminals coming up in anniversary and uh, the reason why I want to bring these up is um, the terminals will be adding uh, more to the fiction and uh, they pretty much come out and said they'll, they'll tie it a little bit into the, the Halo 4 story so going back down uh, memory lane with Halo 1 we'll get some fresh new content there and um, I think the terminals uh, visually they're very impressive um, but fictionally I think that's I'm really intrigued by them. I'm definitely looking forward to that part of uh, Anniversary the most, I think, in terms of story, because it's going to be the most new. The one thing that, that, that hit me the first time I watched the uh, the Terminal video, the, it was the first, sorry, the second Terminal entry. Um, we're going to be talking about spoilers here for, for Anniversary and for the Terminal, so our listeners do not mind, but... The second terminal um, focuses on Guilty Spark. It um, it references uh, some of the some of the Forerunner terminology that we first came across in um, in Cryptum. Um, so, do you guys want to talk about that a little bit? Um, do you think do you think this is the one of the methods that will be that'll be used to sort of bridge the gap? It will connect Cryptum and connect Halo One, connect Halo Four. Well. I think it's kind of apparent that that's the intention. Uh, if you're gonna, if you're gonna re-release the first game uh, as a as a ways of tying into and um, emphasizing what's gonna be coming in the future, you're gonna have to introduce some new elements, even on a, a subtle level. And I think the fact that they're deciding to go on a, a much more drastic route in terms of introducing a whole second storyline. Um, it's it's definitely opening up opening up a lot of possibilities uh, and interesting things for us fans to look at. 
so where where um where do you think these terminals are going to go? Because um, it won't be it won't be a retrial. Physically. Yeah, where they'll thematically as well. Like where 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 will the where will the story go? Like what what kind of story do you think they're going to try and tell? I don't think they're going to uh, tread Krypton because Krypton tells its own story and the story is not yet complete. Second book isn't even out yet, so I don't think they're going in that direction with them. Where do you guys think we're we're going ahead with these terminals? Well, I think it's definitely interesting that we're getting guilty sparks point of view just because one we haven't gotten a whole lot of that two we know what happens to him so i'm kind of i mean i don't want them to like resurrect spark that much necessarily but i'm it does prompt some of the questions about why this monitor is sort of daily routine and his response and view to what's going on on the ring is going to play a role in later games that's definitely something that would be interesting i think um i forget who it was that said it um but someone from 343 industries said uh, around the time of them announcing the the name of the organization was that they said it may not be clear to you now but at some point in the future it'll become apparent why we chose this name um yeah and i think that definitely means that guilty spark is a huge player in the um upcoming story and the terminals yeah because they're from his perspective kind of lend some more credibility to that idea uh one one interesting thing dave that you mentioned was that the you don't want to see spark resurrected um but you saw we, we've all seen origins obviously in halo legends and uh during origins part two during the ending segment we see a monitor kind of coming out of this, I don't know, shield or this glowing light, whatever it is, and flying forward towards the camera before it cuts away. But my thought upon seeing that was that uh, actually that being an AI, his memory or his consciousness or, or whatever you want to call it, could have been moved to another housing and that Guilty Spark actually isn't as dead as we probably are hoping. <laughs> That's true. I hadn't really thought about that. And also, I mean, we definitely know that they know when a halo's been destroyed, so it might make sense that they can do a sort of remote fabrication for a monitor, too. That's something... I mean, we don't know about the a lot about the inner communication of all the rings and how they sort of sync up, so that's possible, I guess. Could have Spark come back from the dead. It's funny that um, in the in the terminal video, it, the the, the cutscenes uh, we've seen that um, we get to see Guilty Spark's sort of um, personal attitude towards uh, the Forerunner species, and one of the other monitors that he talks to has much more of a defeatist attitude, and um, Guilty Spark just didn't seem to agree um, with with the other monitor. Maybe the other monitors yes. about um, about the the species being doomed by their mistakes. Um, he seemed a lot more optimistic, a lot more thoughtful on the subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah, abject testament. One thing that interest, interested me about that was, um, well, in Halo Two, we saw the second monitor we've ever seen in a Halo game, and the personality, even the voice was pretty similar to guilt, to what we saw from Guilty Spark. 
previously. Um, and now we have Abject Testament, who is got a, a different voice and obviously a different outlook on everything. Like you said, much more morose and uh, downbeat. And um, it, it's interesting that these AI can have that many different personalities. And even more interesting that those personalities didn't develop over the millennia they spent alone, but were already present at the time of the Forerunners. Mm. So I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think we would have developed a personality um, after the initial firing of the Halos. I think they, uh, they definitely would have had their own personalities before. And I think that's what the terminal shows us, is that Guilty Spark was definitely, definitely had a preset of uh, definitely had his own opinion on how, on things as they were going down at that point in time, and that um, after the firing off the Halo array, he had a lot of time to think about it. And I think that might have contributed to his eventual rampancy, that he had nothing to do but think about it. Now, do you think he went rampant uh, before we met him in Halo One, or do you think are you just referring to in Halo Three? No, I, I think the seeds were planted just by his general, the way they presented um, Spark um, in the way he simply disagreed almost with the situation as it was happening. He was, he was given this, this role, this task, and he didn't seem to be too happy with how things were going. And I think that was the seed, that this general disagreement was the seed that um, eventually would grow into a full-blown rampancy. That was the beginning of That was the trigger. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think, or, or at least used to think, that Guilty Spark was rampant when we first met him on Installation 04. And I think um, symbolically, if you look at the Halo, or all aspects of the Halo fiction, red has been used consistently as the color of rampancy, and I don't think they would necessarily change uh, in that approach to it. So I think the actual moment of rampancy was in Halo 3 when he found out they were going to blow up his installation for a second time. <laughs> Finally pushed him over the edge. He's like, oh, I, you don't one time I forgive you for the first time you blew up my home, but the second time, no, that's it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm, even in, even in, uh, especially, even in the uh, terminals, while he doesn't agree with sort of the situation, you already get that he's, already developing an attachment to his ring. He's like, oh, this is going to be great. I get my ring. It's going to be awesome. And definitely sort of being alone on that. I think sort of the one of the things you could take as evidence that he's going rampant or has gone rampant is in the flood. They have a mention of, at least from the chief's perspective, he asks him how long he's been alone. And he gives it a 100,000 year figure and Chief's like, well, anyone would go a little crazy after that. So there's at least definitely from the Chief's perspective, he's not all there to begin with. It's kind of a question of how much of that developed after, or it's just his initial personality was kind of spacey. And just one last thing here about, yeah. the, about the terminals. Do you think there's more to the terminals than just Guilty Spark's story? Do you think, think we learn anything else significant or see anything else significant? I think we're going to get hints towards something else significant, but obviously without seeing the terminals, it's it's kind of hard to say, you know, what's going to be present. Um, there was some interesting footage of uh, both the conflict 
the the current conflict on Halo between the Pillar of Autumn and the Covenant, um, but also some interesting footage of the Flood when the Halo fired the first time. And I'm interested to see what more footage along those lines might be present in other terminals. And I'm hoping there's more, but again, no way to know for sure. I think uh, I think we've come to an actual end point here in our, our discussions. And this marks the, the end of our first segment here. Um, I do thank you guys for taking your time out and contributing to our little podcast experiment. No problem. Yeah. Okay, guys, uh, we're going to take a wee short break, and uh, we will return in the next part with the discussion of some gameplay elements and some other Halo game-related stuff. So stay tuned. Back to the Forum Dog podcast. This is part two. Uh, this is Danny, also slightly live, and joining me for the second part. Uh, ben, would you like to introduce yourself, Ben? Uh, yeah. Uh, I, as Danny said, I'm Ben. I go by Galleon EB online, uh, pretty much everywhere, including my gamer tag. Probably best known for the uh, longtime veteran of the Neo of the NeoGaf forums. And uh, joined Ford and Dawn about a year ago, writing mostly about aspects of Halo gameplay. Uh, I've written a lot about Forge, uh, about the campaign gameplay, and uh, about the challenge system. So the second part, uh, this is your area of expertise, and um, we talk about the gameplay and non-fiction related topics. Um, what we're talking about today in particular will be uh, some announcements from Comic-Con, the Atlas, plus some challenges, uh, the Connect additions to Halo CE Anniversary, and uh, the achievements. Hopefully if we've got time at the end, uh, we'll give some give some feedback with the TU beta and the beta playlists. To begin with here, uh, we're going to talk about Atlas. Um, Atlas is uh, an application for Windows Mobile, uh, Windows Phone 7, and it's uh, meant to be a companion piece uh, for Halo Reach. What it boils down to is a an advanced radar come advisory sort of function we use top down sort of perspective. And it offers you the um, tells you where the weapons are, the vehicles are on the map. Well, I want to take your opinion on this, Ben. What what do you think of uh, of Atlas? Well, my first thought is that I was impressed that they were able to create it in the first place. That they're able to pull down that kind of information in real time, either by adding or creating. You know, new data streams down from games as they progress. I was I was impressed that they were able to, able to pull that off in the first place. Yeah, I think they mentioned something on uh, something at Halo Fest. They were adding a couple of new tools to the back end, but we didn't really talk about it. And this is probably the fruit. Yeah, it feels almost like a skunkworks project, kind of seeing what kind of information they can pull down, and then figuring out what they can do with it. And I'm I'm really curious to see how it's going to be applied. You know, it can't be applied to custom maps. You know, that's going to not make it useful for much of the MLG circuit. You know, I think it's going to be incredibly useful for teams that are going into matchmaking to be able to better coordinate with one another and call out when weapons are respawning. I got the impression from the reveal, they're working with 
Brady Games on Atlas and uh, Brady Games will be providing alternative map layouts so I'm getting the impression that they're trying to aim Atlas at the new Halo player say maybe the player the players pick up reach multiplayer with uh, with anniversary for example people who won't be as familiar with the maps they need a little bit of an extra equalizer to uh, sort of stand alongside the long-term Halo players yeah, I think that's one possible application. Like the, it, that seems to be who it's aimed at. But I can't help but think that how casual can you be, and still a be a, be made aware of this kind of feature, and b get it going on your Windows Seven mobile phone, and then get that mobile phone into a position where you can be monitoring it at the same time that you're playing. It 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 feels like something that hardcore players are going to be using more. But as you said, it's it, it very much looks like it's being targeted as much at casuals as anyone else. So I'm going to be really curious to see how widely this gets adopted. I think it was interesting that um, they, they asked Frank Connor what he thought about the future of such a such a application would be. And was there any plans for it, of course? He said, yep, there's plans for it, and he kept it with that. So... Um, I think it'll be interesting to keep an eye on Atlas in the long run because the ability to, to watch a match in real time on a separate application, um, that sort of technology going alongside Halo, I think the actual technology involved is fantastic and there there are there are many, many different possibilities out there. It, it feels very much like a, a first iteration on something where they're kind of exploring ideas within Halo Reach but if you sort of extrapolate where they're going with those, this sort of thing, you know, the, the natural extension would be, you know, some kind of viewing mode or watching mode or Halo TV type thing fully integrated into Halo 4 rather than kind of bolted on after the fact in Reach. So if you, you know, I'm kind of I'm looking at a lot of the things that 343 is doing, um, you know, with Halo Anniversary and with the title update. And I, I think there might be a lot of clues sort of as to what their mindset is and how they're thinking about features for Halo 4 and the direction they're bending those titles. And I think this is definitely one of those clues. I, I can definitely see what... It reminded me at the start, when seeing the application in the video, it reminded me of the whole sim management games where you would you'd have the entire game played out and you'd be able to plan strategies and stuff. And um, yeah, it's, kind, it's kind of old school in a way like that. It got me thinking that uh, imagine at the end of a match... Uh, you, you go to waypoint to check in your post-match stats to get the full rundown, and maybe you'd have in the corner of the screen a little, um, little window with that sort of engine built into it, and you watch a replay of the match from that perspective of both teams, so you could then see how the teams move throughout the entire map, and that might help you better yourself and better your team, maybe. Yeah, that would be fantastic if it wasn't just a wasn't just a device to stream real-time data, but a way to actually go back and kind of look at how things ebbed and flowed over the course of the match. I hadn't thought about that. Like I said, the, the technology behind it, there's there's so much different ways it could be utilized. I think this is just the initial application. I'm, I'm excited to see where they take in the future. I do hope that uh, they don't just limit it to Windows 7 phone users. So I hope they be able to take that technology and uh, bring, it, bring it to the bigger audience out there. Okay, we're going to move on here to um, something else that was announced right alongside Atlas. Uh, they revealed the custom challenges and updates to Waypoint. Um, the updates to Waypoint seem to be following in line with the update 
to the Xbox dashboard in general, which is adding adding connect features and also simplifying and changing the the dashboard user interface. Uh, it's something more akin to the Metro user interface that you see right now on Windows phones. The Waypoint update seems to be mirroring this uh, this change. One of the new features we're getting alongside Atlas is the ability to make custom challenges to um, to challenge our friends with, and uh, we got a sneak peek. And um, what, what did you think about the, about the challenges? I know you're a, you're a massive challenge fan. You've written quite a lot about the challenges. What's what's your take? You know, I'm more excited about the uh, the the community or the social custom challenges than I am probably about anything in the in the actual title update itself. You know, and the big question I had around it was just how in-depth are we going to be able to go? Are we going to be limited to the same kind of toggles that we had with the templates that were part of the reach set um, that are kind of baked into the disk? Or are they going to be able to go further than that? And, you know, the answer is they're able to go further than that. It's still... It's, fa- a, it's a contrast to the uh, to the initial sort of reception that Challenges got. Whenever Challenges came out, we were all excited about them. We took part in them. And then it sort of fizzles away, and we start talking and asking them, well, can we change up, can you guys change up the challenges for us? Can you use these modify the challenges in a sort of significant way? And they said that they're, they're quite rigid and they're not able to do much with them. They'll look into changing the challenges. And since 3.3 has taken over, we've seen slightly more elasticity with the challenges. Yeah, so the, the only things that can be changed in the templates that are baked into the game are the number of instances required to complete the challenge, whether it's, you know, 100 kills or 200 kills or 300 kills, and the amount of credits that they pay out. Everything else from the name to the completion criteria are baked into the individual templates. And, you know, what the what the custom challenge system does is it basically explodes all of the variables that go into those templates and lets you select from them, and lets you select from them in a much more granular level than the ones that shipped in game. So we saw from that little demo from the video, I, I can't remember where it was from, you know, you can pick your game type, you can pick whether it's online or not. If it's a mode that has a difficulty setting, you can pick the difficulty. And then you can go down and pick the, the type of challenge that it's going to be, whether it's to go after a specific metal or whether a, ty- a category of metal or an enemy or a classification of enemy. And you can go all the way down to saying, you know, it's not just grunts you need to kill, you need to kill, you know, grunt infantry or a specific type of grunt or a specific type of enemy or a specific metal. And it looks like they pulled in every type of enemy and every subclass and every single metal that you can achieve in the game, which I thought was really impressive. So you can see how they're still following the general structure for the shipping challenges, but they're exposing the system to all of the detail that's beneath it. They're also putting intelligent limiters on the system to prevent abuse. I noticed that there's a, there's a certain amount of slots that you get for creating and accepting custom challenges. Um, and there's also hard-baked time limits in these certain challenges, so you can't say, do this within one minute, do it, finish it, there you go, move on to another one and abuse the system that way. Yeah, I think it was David Ellis that said on one of the forums, it might have been NeoGAF, where he was saying that, you know, there's going to be some challenges that will offer huge payouts that could be easily abusable. They're going to have a pre-baked time limit of 24 hours that they'll be active for, and you can only have one active custom challenge at a time. 
So if you accept one of these big challenges, like, say, a lasso run on Nightfall, you're not going to be able to do that 10 times in a day to rack up tons of credits. You're going to be able to accept that once every 24 hours as an anti-grinding mechanism. You know, I think it's going to be important that they monitor what people are going to be doing because you know there's going to be quite a few people that are going to try to exploit the system. Exploitation is going to be the first thing tried with the system because people have just have that mindset that competitive people out there. First thing they usually do is how can I maximize the potential of the system for my own personal gain? And that's yep. the first thing that will happen. Yeah, and it's also interesting that you can't set the amount of credits that get paid out. The the credit payouts are contingent on the variables that you set. So presumably if you pick something that's really difficult, like a, a legendary run on a campaign level with a lot of skulls on, then the system is automatically going to select a really high payout for you. Which which raises the question is whether there's going to be you know, a daily or weekly credit cap associated with the social challenges or whether you know completing them runs into the daily credit cap of 120,000 credits which you can run into pretty quickly when you're at a fairly high rank as you and I are yeah as I was going to say I'm hoping that um, with these custom challenges they give some give the more dedicated and long-running players slightly more leeway in the credit accumulation well overall the challenges they give them this an increase in the payouts recently and I'm hoping that uh, to go along with this overall rejuvenation in the credit system, that a credit cap increase uh, will follow. Yeah, you know, and just in terms of managing the overall credit economy, I strongly prefer the sort of levers that we as players can control to accumulate credits than relying purely on chance. I found the um, you know the jackpots that Bungie was running were quite frustrating because you could play for an extended period of time and never trigger them. I remember those cases where you, you go in with a group of friends, you play seven games in a row, back-to-back -back in big team or something, and that takes a long time to get through that many games, and if you spend time with your friends, some people don't have that sort of time to dedicate to it, and uh, so you go in, you're looking for your double jackpots, you, that's the only reason why you, you go after those certain playlists when the jackpot is active. You get nothing for those seven games, and all your friends will get one after one game, two games, three games. And you right. really feel bad about yourself. It's like, why is this happening to me? I, this is this is not why I came in here. This is not fun. Yeah, and it it just feels like player reward shouldn't be so so closely tethered to chance. And so I I really like the the credit boost that three four three gave to the challenges because then you can actually, you know, it makes the challenges worth going for again, and you can manage your time if that's what you're going for. And likewise with the custom challenges. So on a side note here, just uh, since we're on the topic of this. Do you think um, do you think it might be wise, maybe in future or even in the next game, that uh, whatever system they use, they bring back the old double double payout weekends that they had going? Do you think there's any room for double payout weekends? Well, I think it depends really on what kind of player investment systems they're going to have. You know, whether they're going to be dishing out credits or experience points, or what the basis for that is going to be. Um, I certainly like the idea of having rotating or perhaps boosted motivators for you know for weekend players or to highlight new content um, you know for, for a while Jeremiah was using the double credit playlists as a way to highlight changes that he was making in matchmaking or as a way to highlight new content I, I think that's a pretty good way to do it and the other way you know we saw a different approach with uh, with Halo 3 where rather than making extensive changes to individual playlists they would roll out you know, kind of this this rotation of 
playlists that would only make appearances for a couple of days on the weekend, and those would become really popular, and they would feature, like you said, double XP. So I, I, I like the idea. There's a whole variety of ways that 343 can implement it, and it really kind of comes down to what those investment systems are going to look like. I certainly am really encouraged by the fact, again, looking at what they're doing with the Reach as kind of clues for what they're going to do with Halo 4, you kind of look at their thinking behind the custom challenges. Certainly they're making them more detailed, but they're also putting a lot more of the control for the challenge system and for your own personal progression through the ranks in your hands as opposed to in the hands of the playlist designers. You don't have to rely on chance whether or not you're going to get this lucky jackpot. You don't have to rely on the challenges that are kind of going to be fed out you know four at a time each day you can now go out and seek out these custom challenges that you and your friends are creating and i think that making the investment system much more hands-on is it's going to be much more interesting and much more exciting okay we're going to move uh, on to uh, one of the bigger comic-con announcements is the uh, announcement that halo anniversary will be supporting connect <laughs> With uh, <laughs> the still separate modes and gameplay features, the first mode uh, is well. The both modes are tied into the same system. It's, um, it's you're, you're scanning objects whilst you're playing the game. You scan these objects using Connect. You give it a voice command to analyze or scan. It does it. it scans enemies. It scans weapons, allies vehicles, scan them, and add it to your collection. You're able to go into your collection then, um, and then move around the little 3D model of a particular item using Connect, using your hand gestures off that particular that particular entry in the uh, in the in the feature itself. It's, um, it's analyze, and uh, the the gallery mode's called the library, not to be mistaken with the, the level. And um, this was this was their their big Connect push. For Halo Universe, but it's not really, not really significant. Uh, it's not, not going to really impact the majority of players uh, in any sort of significant way. But I think it's important to note that these features are exclusive to Connect and Connect owners. I, I know that uh, my reaction to it hasn't really changed. Now that uh, I sat, sat and thought about it for a while, um, I know where I stand on this, and um, so I want to ask you. Ben, where where do you stand on Halo Anniversary's Connect implementations? Well, I think there's there's kind of two sides to it, right? There's the mode itself, and then there's the Connect aspect of it. So just to kind of take those in order, like the mode itself is very cool. Like I'm a big fan of these sort of Easter egg hunt type modes, and that's cool. Um, it, it, it looks like it's very similar to some of the extended fiction pieces that they've been building up on Waypoint. They've been running a long-standing series just, you know, focused on enemy types and focused on weapons. And, you know, it's, it's really great for people that are interested in the level of fiction and level of love that goes into every object in the series. And so I think there's an audience for it, and that kind of thing is really cool. And then there's the connect piece, which is, you can't do this by looking at an object and pressing a button. You have to do this by looking at an object and saying a word. And that word isn't detected by the Xbox Live mic, it's detected by the Kinect. Meaning that anybody who does not have the Kinect is not going to be able to access this feature at all. I, I thought that was disheartening. You know, when, when, 
when Microsoft said that they were going to be rolling out more Kinect content aimed at the hardcore gamers, which I think aptly describes you and I, um, certainly, I, I assumed that they were going to be creating new incremental content for it. You know, saying, here is this feature that was only possible with Kinect that we yeah. will be interested in. Yeah. And so that's what I was kind of looking toward. And this isn't that. This is creating a feature and then walling it off and saying, okay, now we're going to make it connect only, which is like completely backward, right? So now for people that don't have connect, the existence of connect is actually reducing the amount of content that they get. Because this clearly, if this was released a year and a half ago, this mode, you would have been able to look at an object and press a button and scan it, and it would work exactly the same way you'd expect it to work. But now that Connect is out, they won't have that option. And I, I, I was really, really surprised to see Microsoft go in this direction. And while in and of itself it's not a huge deal, I'm a little concerned about the precedent that it sets for how they're going to go about making more value-add content for Connect. Whether, you know, the conversation now isn't, what can we do with Connect? It's what features are we going to make exclusive to Connect? And that's a very different conversation. Yeah, the, your your response mirrors my own mostly. Um, like I said, never Microsoft announced that going forward a lot of their own titles will be incorporating Connect in some form or fashion. It's almost inevitable being a Microsoft first part of the Halo is going to connect at some point and anniversary is our first opportunity to see what they're going to be doing with connect seeing what they can do with connect and um, to me it, it, it feels arbitrary it doesn't really feel meaningful um, I left out some details uh, whenever I was describing it one little thing we looked over I looked over um, was the voice commands for throwing grenades and reloading now it, those <sighs> I don't know. I, that's not really particularly meaningful. It's interesting. I'm sure it's it's it, it will be fun. It's a nice little way of layering sure. connect on top of the gameplay where it won't interfere. Just provide an alternative. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting. It's it's like an interesting experiment, right? Because you're going to have yeah. the traditional controls, and then you're going to have the voice commands alongside that. Yeah. And so, at the very least, there's the novelty factor. And if it works well, who knows? People are going to use it. But you know, that's the kind of value-add stuff that I was expecting to see from Connect. If you look at Microsoft's other first-party offering, the big title that's out now, Forza 4, they have a very strong Connect integration in the Forza 4, where you can interact with the different cars and the libraries via Connect, but that Connect support does not come at the expense of locking out uh, the same the same content for controller users, uh, which is the majority of people anyway. You can still access the same content. You're just interacting with it differently. And I think that's what Connect is supposed to offer. If it doesn't offer you a new way to experience or interact with the world, it should at least offer you an alternative way of interacting with games. And like the the, the example here with, with Anniversary, the, the reload and the and the solar grenade, those are alternatives, but the library and the analyze functions, that's that's cutting content. Like you're saying, it is it it removes it removes content for the sake of removing content to incentivize 
getting a connect. Yeah, connect users would be rewarded exactly as much, even if there were the option to press a button. We, we, we would be able to interact with it the same way if we so chose, because we had the hardware. There's, there's nothing taken away from Connect users. And, and like you said, this is, it feels very much like a marketing decision as opposed to a game design decision. The cool thing is, is that the, the, the specific content that, that they've decided to make Connect exclusive, that specific content is, like, is lower. It's lower and it's, a mo it's model viewing. They really view the specific new upgraded models. And it, what's really, really, what I find really, really funny and strange about the whole thing is that those are things that only the most hardcore of the hardcore, people like, like us, people on HBO, like, we're the, the most dedicated of the, of the, of the core gamer. We're a, a smaller niche, uh, within that subset that we're, we're pretty much the, the ideal audience. Like, we, we, we consume everything Halo. And, uh, like, like the Ford on the Dawn is about the fiction, about the gameplay and analyzing these sort of things. And that sort of deep lore is the sort of thing that we would really appreciate. We would get more out of that than the average, uh, random Halo player. Most people just don't even bother caring about the story. They'll just play through it, experience it. But they'll not ask and not wonder about the deeper things that, that those little encyclopedia entries would reveal. You know, but so it's like they're taking something that we care about a lot. And then saying you have to get Connect for it, and I, I I haven't found a reason to have the Connect. That's not the type of gamer I am. Mm -hmm. And taking something that they know that I love, which is the lore and fiction, taking something only the hardcore of the hardcore will really really appreciate, and putting that behind the Connect, I feel that's that's definitely not something they should have done uh, in good faith, really, because uh, I, I don't see the hardcore Halo fans being big Connect players. To be honest with you, I really, really don't. Well, yeah, and it, like you said, it just it feels arbitrary, right? There's no reason that this has to be something that's tied to Connect. There's no reason we couldn't just push up on the D-pad and be able to access this mode. And to take something like this that's clearly targeted at the hardcore gamer, you know, I really think that this is the kind of thing Microsoft was talking about when they said that they were going to be developing content for the core gamer. You know, it's it, and it feels a little desperate to me. It, it it says they can't figure out what kind of thing to make for the core gamer with Connect, so they're going to create. You know, they're going to take content that's aimed at them and make it Connect only. Yeah. And it to, and to me, it just says that they can't quite figure out what to do with the device. You know, if you look at the second generation Connect games that are coming out, they're an awful lot like the first generation Connect games that are coming out. Um, right, right down to the names, and so, I mean, if you really step back and think about the Connect integration yeah. in in Halo Anniversary, it comes down to saying a couple of words. That's basically what it can do, right? It can detect that you said throw grenade or grenade. It can detect that you said reload. It can detect that you said scan or analyze or whatever the word is. It really comes down to saying a couple of words. It doesn't really take take full advantage of the hardware in any yeah. way that speaking into your Xbox Live mic couldn't. You know, and it, it just feels a little desperate. What I think Microsoft wants is to make me, make people like me who are really big hardcore fans, they want us to purchase Connect. And to be honest, I would love to want to purchase Connect 
and what Microsoft are trying to do with anniversary. It's a very small example. I don't know what their future plans are, but just a little small example there it makes me not want to buy it because I feel as if it, there's not enough effort being put into something. Yep. Rightio, so we're going to move on now to our next subject. Um, is We're staying with anniversary. The achievements that were recently put out there. Um, I think it's worthwhile looking at these achievements because um, normally games come out, they throw out the achievements and they're not really much of a big deal. They're nice. Because you play through a gaming, you, you'll, you'll automatically unlock some of them anyway with your normal gaming habits. And that's what will happen with Anniversary as well. But what I find interesting about Anniversary's example of achievements is that not many games are in the position to be remade. They know how we've played Halo for the past 10 years. We've told them, we've shown them as a community, we've done all these different things with the original Halo game. And it comes now to back to, back to Microsoft, back to 343, and they... They've had to find out, okay, achievements, we want to try and reward people for doing things uh, with Halo. What's the best way to incentivize fun? And I thought it was, I think, I think these new achievements that they've put out there, I think that they're very interesting just because of the different approaches. Not a new game, this is an old game. And how they fit the achievements around what the community, maybe the community's expectations for them might have been. Yeah, you can see it was helpful of 343 to break them down by category because you can definitely see a lot of the same type of and used to from the from the past Halo games. You know, starting with Halo 3, you know, there's your your basic set of achievements for just playing the game from getting from one end of the campaign to the other. And then you've got your set of achievements where they're trying to motivate you to try out new features. You know, in Halo 3 and Reach it was things like swapping weapons or you know, I can't remember which game it had, but I called it the, hey, the Needler doesn't suck anymore achievement, which was, you know, please use the Needler five times and realize that it doesn't <laughs> suck. You know, th- things like that, where it's like just completing basic tasks and just kind of playing through the game. And then there was always this little bucket of achievements that were carved out for doing, like, specific tasks. You know, specific, fun, interesting, challenge, challenging, weird things with the gameplay. But that list was always really small in Halo 3 and Reach because they also had to crowd in the multiplayer achievements. And so there was only ever like five, six, ten of them total. With Anniversary, they've carved out, you know, two for each mission. And they, they remind me a lot of the achievements for Crackdown. Yeah, a, a little bit, you know, where Crackdown's achievements were all about, you know, go and do something fun. You know, go and do something in a way that you wouldn't normally do it. Um, and there's a couple of those on here. Um, anyway, but, you know, you can see how, like you said, kind of responding to the community and different aspects of the community. There's, there's things in here for speed running. There's things in here for grinding through, to, you know, ways that are really challenging. You know, there, there's stuff in here for, you know, playing through a mission like the way you wouldn't normally wouldn't, like playing through the second level without ever climbing into a vehicle. You know, and, and finding ways to handle, you know, encounters that you might do in a vehicle on foot. Um, so overall, I was really pleased with the approach. When you get down to the nitty-gritty, I think you and I probably agree there's definitely some that we're a little apprehensive about, particularly with the fail conditions. <laughs> yeah. Um, anytime there's a challenge that says to complete a mission on a certain difficulty in a certain amount of time... I get yeah. a, I get a little hesitant. <laughs> I know people were saying that oh don't worry about it. they're fun you know time uh, time trials are that's what speed running's about it's about doing it fast yeah it's fantastic 
I'm saying I'm not saying that there isn't an audience out there that appreciates doing things really, really, really fast. But I don't like doing things really, really fast because whenever I see a countdown on the screen, it's like someone's holding a gun to my head and saying, "Do this now! Hurry up! Hurry up! Hurry up!" And I don't like feeling that sort of um, forced sort of. Uh, I, could just, I just get really apprehensive in those, in those sort of environments. Think if you look at um, Halo One and Halo Three, when it comes to the Warthog runs in both games. In one, you had the countdown timer, and you're always struggling to get there in time. In Halo 3, you still have that sort of sense of, holy crap, I have to do this as fast as possible, but you don't have a gun at the back of your head. Yeah, they, so. they motivated you in different ways, because with Halo 3, the level was basically dropping off a certain distance behind you um, as the Halo ring was collapsing. But like you said, so you, you, you had kind of an in-game pressure you know, you knew you had to keep going forward, but you didn't have this timer in front of your face that was counting down. It, it made it feel very artificial, very much like a race. The, the other achievements on here, just looking through the list right now, we have things like destroy four wraith tanks in assault in the control room. I can't imagine those, uh, and the pilot a banshee level on assault in the control room. I can't imagine those achievements being anything but a joy to try and get. Yeah, and you know, there's some of these on here that I'm not actually sure how hard they're going to be, like the, the popcorn.gif, which is my favorite achievement name in a good long while. <laughs> yeah, you know, kill one, 100 flood infection forms on the keys level. I, I have no idea how hard that is going to be to do. Is that, some, yeah. is that something that you're going to be able to do just for, over the course of playing from one end of the level to the other? Or are you going to have to sit back and grind away at it? And then the other question I have around those are, you know, is there going to be some kind of in-game counter like the challenges to tell us how far along we are? Or are we just going to have to plug away and hope that we're getting close or try to keep track somehow? Well, I think it's all to do with the technology involved in the engine and whatnot. That's technically possible. Um, you'd hope so. You'd hope so. You'd hope with this reach has it. Why yeah. not expect the next Halo to have it? This is not exactly the next Halo, if you know what I mean. The yeah, yeah. Little game remade. Um, but there, there's some things there that make me sit down and think, like the the achievement for doing the uh, the beach assault on the silent photographer. Uh, there's an achievement for going through that entire beach assault and not losing a single marine. I've never even thought about the marines. I played that level I don't know how many times. And I've never sat down and thought, how about I keep these guys alive? And I'm sure other people might have done that. Or, they're happy with that sort of thing, but I've never sat, and sat down and thought about that before, and I, that achievement just made me think about that level again in a slightly different way. And considering it's 10 years old, and they have something that makes you think about it in a different way, that just blew my mind. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. And again, it's another one of those where I have no idea how difficult it's going to be to do. You know, I kind of just do my own thing. Here at the end, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it's it's, it's going to be fun to do. The, the ones that make me the most nervous, I can tell you, there's Never Tell Me the Odds, which is complete a Warthog ride on the level The Maw on Legendary with at least a minute remaining on the countdown, which I'm reasonably certain I've never pulled off. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I haven't either, in all honesty. Yeah, and then... Um, I think I'm looking forward to that one. Completing the library on Legendary in 30 minutes or less. And to me, that's like it's like three unpleasant things in a row. <laughs> the library itself, the timer, and then the difficulty. The funny thing is, I think it was hinted at on 
on Neocast by David Ellis. I think he, he, he implied that um, if it, unless it explicitly states it has to be in single player or co-op, it can be in either. So if you're doing 30 minutes library runs with a friend, it might not be so bad um, versus doing it on your own. I don't imagine I would ever have fun doing that on my own. I'm sure there's some sadists out there that looking forward to the challenge. I'm just not one of them. Yeah, there's there's going to be someone who latches onto these. But, you know, overall, I thought they did a pretty good job with them. And again, I hope that this points to the direction that they're going with Halo 4, where they're really going to think about, you know, some of the fun things that you can do over the course of the campaign, as opposed to making them all completion-based. I, I think it's worth bringing up the one category of challenges that are achievements, rather, that are not here. So there's 44 achievements. I was surprised they didn't go for the full 50 or 49 like Bungie did. Yeah. But there's no multiplayer achievements. And that, of course, is because the um, the maps that ship with it are basically Reach's DLC, and so they're going to have their own achievement bundled to them. And we have no idea what they're going to be like. And I just hope that they're not as terrible as the downloadable, you know, as the map pack achievements have been so far. The, uh, the, the defined achievements, the last set of achievements we got... They were broken. There were conditions for them, and you could sort of bypass the conditions by doing custom games, and there was never a fix for them. Remind that they weren't particularly exciting to begin with. Well, yeah, I mean, this is, it's the second map pack for Reach, and we get an achievement for punching guys with the oddball, or for returning flags. I mean, there's nothing exciting or challenging about returning flags. You know, certainly nothing that warrants building an achievement around it. I just thought there was a total lack of imagination when it came to those, yeah. and so I'm I'm hoping they've taken all of that feedback to heart and they've done some interesting things with the achievements this time around. When it comes to multiplayer achievements, and we know these are going to be pure multiplayer achievements, I I just don't have faith in them doing anything radically different. Yeah, it's kind of hard to get fired up on the precedent. Okay, uh, just to top off now the uh, the end of this uh, second part. The TU beta playlists and the, the TU in general. We've uh, had our first little taste of the, the title update playlist. Uh, changes uh, will be coming up uh, in, with the anniversary on November 15th through the TU beta hovers. Uh, we've now had a chance to sit down and try out some of the um, some of the changes associated with the TU. I've had a very mixed reaction overall to the TU. I went into it hoping for the best, very optimistic. I was I was one of the people who was demanding, I say demanding, being uh, being very forceful with my opinion that Bloom was a bad thing and that um, with Reach, uh, I want Bloom gone, just to have it gone as soon as possible. And so TU, in that respect, was sort of an answer to people like me wanting that. And um, it hasn't been the success story that maybe a few months after Reach came out, they would have said it would definitely have had been, had you asked me back then. Um, I think that um, removing Bloom is the magic cure-all patch fix plaster, whatever you want to call it, that will make all the problems go away because it introduces, introduces a whole slog of new problems. Uh, the, the game's balanced around Bloom, and it's only whenever you take Bloom away do you begin to see that. Yeah, there's there, there's this interconnection to the to the different gameplay variables, and when you make adjustments to some of them, it, it really kind of throws that throws things out of balance. I have to confess, I've only played the the the, the title update beta playlist a handful of times, 
Um, and the reason I've only played it a handful of times is because I didn't have enjoyable experiences in them. And, uh, you know, part of that was the fact that I prefer, you know, Reach in a big team battle setting. And part of that was, you know, the way the game played. Have you had a chance to go through the entire suite of changes uh, in your limited times that you went through? Have you managed to appreciate the change to experience them? Uh, you know, I don't think I ran into the camo, or if I did, it didn't make a significant difference. I did see a couple of guys get tagged with plasma grenades, and then armor lock, and then blow up. And that made me feel just, like, almost alarmingly happy. Like, I just got warm and fuzzy all over when I saw that happen. <laughs> um, I did have some situations where I tried to knock guys out of their armor lock deliberately and was not able to do so, at least not with a grenade or two. And so, you know, I, I found that that aspect of it didn't make as much of a difference. I did find that, you know, obviously with the reduction in bloom, people are going to be shooting much more quickly. And when people are shooting quickly, you're going to die much more quickly. And that's where the, the effect that, you know, the player momentum in Reach has that kind of mitigates the effectiveness of strafing. I think that's where it reared its head even more so than it does in just vanilla Reach gameplay where when people are able to fire more swiftly and you have a stronger center of, center of mass, you know, it, it's it's much harder to dodge. It's much harder to strafe. And I think that was one of my, my big realizations playing the, uh, you know, the, both the reduced bloom and the zero bloom game types was that, you know, it, it, it makes for a faster game, but it, in some ways it makes for a more frustrating game. I think um, overall that... Um... Removing, removing bloom, altering bloom, um, has does have the the wide ranging consequences that um, sort of thing you don't really pay attention to. The the, the the needle rifle is disgustingly accurate. Every shot counts as the first shot, so you're getting instant headshots, instant guaranteed headshots, every single time you pull the trigger. And then with the pistol, um, you spam that thing. It's deadly accurate at medium range, and you can kill faster. With a pistol by spamming the trigger, so there's no bloom. You can kill faster with a pistol than you can with a DMR. I don't like the upset balance anymore. I thought I would like it. I think I just I want bloom gone, and and that wanting bloom gone, what I probably meant was I want I also wanted the game to be designed without bloom in mind. There's just something missing about it. But I do think that the reduction in bloom and the other changes for the TU uh, that will see a wider range of implementation. Uh, I think those are for the best because they do offer a slight change in some areas that do need change. Like Armalock needed some kind of uh, some kind of change at some point. I'm glad to see it, but I'm not really sure if it's if it's significant enough to to write home about it. You know, I man, I, I like it. I want it. It's ha I'm happy that it's here, but. I'm not going to say Reach is 100% better because of it. Yeah, and you know, a lot of these things really come down to the implementation because we know they have toggles on the back end now where they can adjust a lot of the variables. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I question whether they're able to really adjust the right variables. Like, think about if they were able to adjust rate of fire along with the amount of bloom because then they would be able to lock things like the DMR into a firing cadence that would, you know, that, that would more closely replicate, you know, what we'd seen in previous Halos. 
because just the act of removing bloom doesn't mm-hmm. replicate that kind of game because reach isn't that kind of game you know I, I hate to say this but part of me thinks that they went after the wrong kind of things or rather they went after uh, a set of features but without including some others they're not yeah. going to be able to realize the full benefit of them and I, I think it's going to be really challenging to find the optimal amount of you know the optimal settings and then roll those out there's nothing in the the title update that really interests me as a halo player really? or as a reach player no there's i mean there's not really anything in there you know my my is that because they don't address some of the some of the issues that you still have with the reach yeah you know my love of halo multiplayer is in big team battle and the things that are broken in big team battle are not being fixed you know, it was the Banshee, it was the vehicle physics, it was the DMR's range, and in some ways, things like reducing bloom are actually going to make s- several of those things worse. And so I see a lot, I saw this list of changes, and what really struck me was, one, it looks like they're clearly going after the big ticket things that people complained about, which was armor lock and bloom, so kudos yeah. to them for doing it, and two none of the changes on there are going to affect any of the game types that I want to play. And so for, you know, for me, who's going to wander out into big team battle, I'm going to see very, very marginal improvement on a very broken game. And so I'm a little disheartened. Like I, 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 the camo nerf in particular seems really, it's really (laughs) incremental, right? It's really, really small. Yeah. Like if they took the, the coding time, that went into the camo shift and put that into making the banshee not be broken i think that we would see much more benefit but you know on, on a list of features you know would i rather have seen you know camo get adjusted as opposed to vehicle health or dmr range and firing speed or you know what, what's really funny with the camo is that i would have preferred that they try to tackle the camo bug that was present in the beta where the guy activates camo and your radar gets affected. It's not the enemy team's radar. Well, like it's supposed to, your radar gets affected. It's fog, and it happened more often during the beta, and we assumed it went away, but it didn't really go away. It just happens more infrequently now. So that bug's still there. I would have preferred to have that bug squished and taken out rather than have any change to the camo at all. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of bug squishes, I was really surprised that this title update doesn't address many of the bugs. You know, because Reach is not a very buggy game, but the bugs that are there are pretty significant, like Revenants getting launched out of maps, <laughs> you know, like the Gauss Hog being able to fire through Forge geometry. The updates outside of the fix for the arcade skew owners for to be able to play Firefight online, outside of that, it was purely focused around adding new game type options as opposed to actually fixing some of these long-standing bugs. Um, again, just another aspect of the title update I was surprised it didn't touch. And the little disappointing thing as well, that, um, just to add in here before we finish up, is that um, when it comes to adding in all these extra things that they can tweak, um, they didn't give us the ability to do so. It was It's on their side only. They released the game type, we downloaded that's how it works. We don't get a change the rate of fire on the weapons if they can. We don't get to take them away if they can. I'm kind of disappointed that it didn't give us that sort of option either. Yeah, and we know it's out of scope be- not because it was impossible to do, but because they didn't have the resources to do it. And the reason we know that is because, 
you know, Bungie and Jeremiah's team developed a number of new game types with a number of new settings that did have that UI layer baked into it, where you can go into Speedpile and change, you know, settings that don't exist in any of the other game types. So they were able to float those things up to the UI level. So it's it's, it's just unfortunate because it adds a level of complexity to um, how they have to manage this title update in terms of what combinations of features they release packed into a single game type. So in in, in some ways, it's a it, it's more restrictive than a regular set of options, which is really important. Well, because well, they also have to communicate these changes to the to the players, and uh, even now, most people don't realize that um, things like eighty five percent bloom, well, not maybe not eighty five percent bloom, but the camo changes, armor lock changes, whenever they go, they'll be going across the board, rather than just individual playlists, and people now even don't realize that. I mean, so they have to, they, they only have to improve their ability to make sure everyone gets the message properly. Because not everyone checks waypoints. Yeah, and that's one of the ways where Reach really isn't helping them out. Because this was one of the things that I was really surprised Bungie didn't improve on after Halo 3 was the way they communicate with players about what it is they're going to be playing in-game. And that's everything from being able to update the screenshots that we see for custom maps to including a description of the game types. And, you know, that hampers 343's ability to tell us what we're playing. Like, the first time I dove into the, the, the title update playlist, I had no idea what I was playing. You know, like, does this include all of the features? Does this include a subset of them? What's in here? I, I had yeah. no way of knowing. I had to go out and look on Waypoint to figure out what was going on. One more challenge they're going to have to deal with was, you know, how do you gather valuable feedback from lots and lots of people when you don't have a way to tell those people what it is they're playing at the time they're playing it. It's a really, really awkward situation. Reach. I think we'll, we'll do the best that we can do, but I think they're only just, just like Bungie that will reach an end point where that's it. That's all they can do with Reach, particularly with the fact that it's not their game, they didn't design it, they don't have that much ability to do, to do anything mainly to the game at this point in time anyway, even if they haven't made it themselves. I think it's something to, to address maybe in future Halo games. Okay, um, with that, with our discussion of the, the TU stuff, I think that's, uh, that's a wrap on this part. Ben, I'd like to thank you for your time. Sure. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks and, for having me on. Uh, thanks for listening, guys, and uh, we'll see you next time.